Well, good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and get started. It's 9.30. Well, as you can see, we're going to be continuing in our little series, going through questions and answers, uh, going through questions that the congregation has submitted. And when we originally started this series, we received nine questions from the congregation. And so the goal was to cover three questions uh, per week over a course of three weeks. And as we kind of jumped into this little series, it become very evident very quickly that we're not going to get through all nine questions in three weeks. Uh, it's just, there's no way to do it. So last week we covered two questions, and I want to show you what the remaining questions are that we're going to be covering over the next several weeks. <clears throat> so we got seven more questions we're going to seek to cover, and today the questions we're going to try to answer are questions number six and question number seven. Okay. All right, so question number six is, many use 2 Peter 2, verse 1, as a proof text against limited atonement. And the answer is, what is the best exegetical understanding of the passage? So if you would, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter, chapter 2, verse 1. So we're turning to 2 Peter 2, verse 1. And that text reads, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Okay, so that's the way the verse reads. Again, the question was, this text is often used as a proof text for limited atonement. So does anybody in here know what the doctrine of limited atonement says? Brother Drew? That Christ, that Christ died on the first blood. Okay. That, that his atonement sacrifice was sufficient only for those who died. Okay. So Christ died for a limited number of people. Um, there are some other terms for that doctrine. Uh, what are some of the other terms for that doctrine? One would be what's called particular atonement. So Christ died for a particular people, his people. And the other uh, term for that um, is called definite atonement. So Christ made definite atonement for a def definite number of people. Okay? And so... This passage, of course, if you read, read the passage again, it says um, these false prophets arose among the people or false teachers arose among the church who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Okay, so some will point to this passage as a text that teaches that Christ died for all men because we have these false teachers here who, who are obviously um, being destroyed by God, uh, facing the wrath of God, and it says that the master bought them. So what does it mean that the master bought them? That's what we're going to kind of dig into. Because on first glance, it seems to appear that Christ, who is the master, has bought them or paid for them or redeemed these, these men, and yet they are destroyed. Others will go a step further and use this passage to teach that someone who has been saved can then subsequently lose their salvation. And so you have... Uh, two um, erroneous teachings that people use this text to, to support. One is 
um, a universal or unlimited atonement, that Christ died for everybody without distinction. And secondly, that people who Christ has died for can be saved and then later lose their salvation. Okay? So, well, I, I, you're continuing, so sorry. That's all right. So, <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and give you the answer up front and then explain the answer as we go through. Okay, so does this, ter- does this verse teach a universal atonement or that one can lose their salvation? <clears throat> well, the simple and emphatic answer is, of course, no, it does not. We can confidently interpret this passage as not teaching universal atonement, but rather as a warning to Christians to be on guard against false teachers who claim to be of the faith and yet are leading people astray with destructive heresies. Scripture is clear. Those who are Christians have been redeemed by the Redeemer. That is, they have been bought by the Master at the cost of His own blood. And so what we have in this passage are those who claim to be Christians, that is, they claim to belong to Christ, and yet they deny the Master as evidenced by the destructive heresies they teach in the church and their sinful conduct. Their end will be destruction, thereby evidencing they never were one of Christ's sheep. Further, this passage is a warning to any who follow after them that their end will also be destruction, thereby evidencing that they too are not of Christ's sheep. Alright, so how do we get to that answer? Because, and I asked that because of this, how can we be so confident to say that they, that is those false teachers, were not bought by the Master when the text clearly says they were bought by the Master, right? Now what does the text say? It says they, were, they deny their Master who bought them, right? So it clearly says the Master bought them. So how can we confidently say that this is, they were not bought by the Master when the text says they were bought by the Master? Well, let's begin by looking at the immediate scriptural context. What is Peter's concern in this chapter? Is his aim here to teach on the doctrine of the atonement or to warn Christians that false teachers will arise from within the ranks of the church? It would be the latter, right? Piper writes of this, of this chapter, 2 Peter 2, there are no commands, no admonitions, no imperatives in chapter 2. Just pure, terrifying description of what will happen to those who fall prey to the false teachers in the church. His aim is clearly to warn of false teachers by describing their conduct, their teaching, and their judgment. So let's read together now 2 Peter chapter 2, and we'll see how Peter describes these false teachers. It says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed, to the, committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, extinction 
making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And so if God has done this in the past, he will certainly do it again is what it's saying. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So he's describing now these false teachers. Bold and willful, these false teachers are. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, these false teachers, are like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. They will be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They're, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. They are accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These, these false teachers, are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the proverb says has happened to them, or what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So, as we read through this chapter, we see very clearly that their conduct, their conduct which was described as what? Being one of sensuality, greed, unrighteous, they indulged in lust, they despised authority, they were blasphemers, they were wrongdoers, they uh, were guilty of revelry, they were deceptive, they were adulterers, they were insatiable for sin, they were forsaking the right way, they were slaves of corruption, they were dogs who returned to their vomit. And so their conduct clearly shows that they are false teachers and therefore not truly Christian. Okay? Secondly, their teaching. What did they teach? Well, they taught destructive heresies. They said false words. They blasphemed about matters of which they are ignorant. They were waterless springs and mist. They made loud boasts of folly, enticing by sensual passions of the flesh. They made false promises about freedom, while they themselves were slaves of corruption. And so their teaching also shows that they were false teachers and therefore not truly Christian. And then finally, their judgment. This passage speaks about the judgment of these false teachers. They had swift destruction. Their condemnation is not idle. God keeps the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. They were born to be caught and destroyed. They were suffering wrong. 
They were accursed children, and for them the gloom of utter darkness had been reserved, and it would have been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness. Okay? So when we read this passage, it's very clear that the false teachers here being described are not Christian. That's evidenced by their conduct, their teaching, and the judgment that God pronounces upon them. Okay? Analogy of Scripture. <clears throat> so, we looked earlier at the word bought. Because that's probably the most important word in this passage, trying to figure out what's, what's going on when it says the master had bought them. Okay, so what does bought mean in the passage? Well, we're going to use the analogy of Scripture to uh, arrive to a conclusion. The analogy of Scripture is the hermeneutical principle of Scripture interpreting Scripture. And so are there other canonical texts that speak more clearly concerning an unclear, difficult, or ambiguous text, such as 2 Peter 2.1? So the phrase, the Master has bought them, is a particular difficulty in this passage. And so what does, the rest of scripture what, what does the rest of Scripture teach concerning the Master buying or purchasing? Well, for time's sake, we won't go and read all of these passages, but... In 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, Ephesians 1, Galatians 1 and 3, Hebrews 9, Psalm 111, 1 Peter 1, Colossians 1. And all of these texts, the language of the Lord buying or purchasing is used. And in each case, this language is applied exclusively to his people. And so the master has bought his people, his elect people that were given to him by the Father. And because we know that Christ will save his people that he has bought, we must conclude that there is more to the phrase the master who bought them in 2 Peter 2.1 than first meets the eye. Okay? Make sense? Everybody tracking so far? All right, let's go on further. Another difficult phrase that's used in this passage is the word master. So using the analogy of scripture, what does the word master in this text mean? Well, we've looked at the word or the concept of bought as it is addressed in other scriptures. Now, let us consider the word or concept of master. The Greek word translated as master in this passage is the word uh, despotes. And that word is used in at least five other New Testament passages to refer to God. It's used in Jude 1 as translated as master. Revelation 6 translated as Lord. 2 Timothy 2 translated as master. Acts 4 translated as sovereign Lord. And in Luke 2, translated as Lord. Okay. So although this is not the usual Greek word to denote God in the New Testament, it has no significant effect on the understanding of the passage. I think sometimes, if we think of the word uh, despot, which is where we get, the, we get our English word despot from that Greek word, right? When we think of the word despot, it has a negative connotation. Someone who's a despot is a bad ruler, right? A, a wicked ruler. But the word itself is not a bad word. Does it make sense? The word itself just simply means one who has absolute authority. One who is a master. One who is a lord. Okay? So the word despot is not a bad word. It just has a bad connotation in 21st century English language. Right? Okay? So when Peter says that God is a despot here, it's not a, it's not a negative thing. Right? It's a positive thing. Because he is a despot. He is an absolute ruler over all things. Okay, and so it is an appropriate title and description of God, who is in fact the sovereign Lord. All right, moving forward. Everybody tracking so far? Okay. Now the scripture continue. 
Are there any other scriptures that have a similar teaching to that of 2 Peter 2.1? Well, I think there's, there's several scriptures, but probably two of the most well-known are Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. The, both of those chapters teach the same thing as being taught in 2 Peter 2. Um, 2 Peter 2. Both of these passages teach on the doctrine of apostasy. Both of these passages have as their main thrust a warning against falling away and an encouragement to persevere. That is the same message of 2 Peter 2. In the Hebrew passages, we see similar things being said of apostates who who seem to be enjoying the spiritual blessings that can only come from covenant union with Christ. In Hebrews 6, we see the apostates were enlightened, they tasted the heavenly gift, they shared in the Holy Spirit, they tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. In Hebrews 10, we see the apostates had knowledge of the truth, there seemed to be a sacrifice for their sins. They seemed to have some interest in the blood of the covenant. They seemed to be sanctified. And they seemed to um, experience the spirit of grace. In 2 Peter 2, we see that these apostates were bought. They escaped the defilements of the world. They had a knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And they had, they had known the way of righteousness. Very similar, right? All those passages. And so we deduce from this that the false teachers in 2 Peter 2 had made a profession of faith. With this profession of faith comes the assumption that the blessings of being in covenant union with Christ are now the possession of the professing Christian. And so for a person to profess faith in Christ and thus claim an interest in the spiritual blessings wrought by the blood of Christ and then to turn their back on this by way of their sin and unbelief, this is truly a heinous sin in the sight of God. And to do so is to bring upon themselves swift destruction. Or in Hebrews 6, their end is to be burned. Or in Hebrews 10, their end is a fearful expectation of judgment. And so we see that all of these passages are in in a very real way parallel passages. And they teach the same thing. That those who are apostate seem to have an interest in, in Christ. But because they have turned away from Christ, their destruction is all the more worse because of that. You see that? So we deduce from that that in 2 Peter 2, 1, these false teachers who were bought by the Master were not redeemed by the Master. They were not bought by the blood of Christ. They seem to have been bought. They claim to have been bought, but they never really were bought. They never were bought by Christ. Just as those in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 never really had a true interest in the blood of Christ. Okay? Now, analogy of faith. I know this writing small, so apologize about that. Analogy of faith. This is the hermeneutical principle that states that the faith or the body of doctrine that the Bible teaches will not and cannot be contradicted by any particular passage. Thus, when we read Scripture, we conclude that the faith taught in Scripture teaches a definite atonement leading to a persevering faith. The Bible teaches that God has chosen a people that he has given them to his son for the purpose that they should be saved. And in the fullness of time, God sent his son to accomplish this work. Christ accomplished this work by living a perfect life in place of his people and then dying a substitutionary death for those same people. He was then raised on the third day for these same people and now sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for these same people and ruling all things for the good of these people. And one day he will return and will glorify all of his people and his people will dwell in the presence of God forever in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the consistent teaching of Scripture. 
passages such as well, all, all of those passages mentioned, Matthew uh, 1, John, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Peter, 1 John, Revelation, all of these passages teach the doctrine of definite or particular atonement, and so it becomes abundantly clear that this is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This is the faith that these false teachers are denying and thus evidencing themselves to not be in the faith and thus not be those for whom Christ has died or bought. Okay? Everybody tracking so far? Next, historical theological interpretation. This is the process by which we compare our interpretive conclusions from our work of canonical exegesis with historical and systematic theology and is in reality a continuation of the analogy of faith, or the analogy of the faith. An example of this would be consulting our confession of faith, consulting trusted commentaries, and the works of theology that have been written over the course of church history. Our confession of faith upholds the doctrine of the particular and effectual nature of the redemption that Christ came to accomplish, and thus categorically denies the doctrine of universal atonement or the losing of one's salvation. If you look at our confession, you read chapters 3, 5, 7, 8, 10, 11, 14, 15, 17, and 21. Each of these chapters uphold the doctrine of particular atonement and perseverance of the saints, either explicitly or by way of theological implication. Therefore, the conclusion... 2 Peter 2.1, according to the immediate scriptural context, the analogy of scripture, the analogy of faith, and the historical theological interpretation cannot be interpreted to teach the doctrine of universal atonement or that one can lose their salvation. Thus we conclude that what is meant in this verse is that these false teachers are falsely claiming to be Christians, and this is made evident because their manner of life and teaching is denying that Jesus is their master who bought them. Their sin is made all the more heinous, because by their false profession of faith, they are profaning the blood of the covenant and outraging the spirit of grace. Their end will be destruction, for it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Therefore, and this is what the whole point of all this is about, therefore, Christian, be on the lookout for false teachers and do not be led astray by them. The false teachers' manner of life and their doctrine will betray them. Okay? That's the point of the passage. Thus, those who are called into the ministry are to keep a close watch on yourselves and on the teaching, 1 Timothy 4, 16a. All right. Any comments, questions, clarifications on that, brother? Pastor Tyler, um, John 15 is another passage that came to mind as you were talking about that. Jesus speaks of branches who are, in a sense, externally united to him. Yeah. But they don't bear fruit because they're not truly united to him. Right. So he cuts them off. Would you say that in the new covenant that there are curses in the new covenant for apostates? Yes. Okay. Yes. The, the the judgment on apostates is is more severe than judgment on those who are unbelievers who've never made a profession of faith. Yes, sir. We have an example throughout the whole of the Old Testament where Israel is the people of God. And, and if you were in the, the nation of Israel, you were a part of the covenant people. However, there were many apostates within that nation. And the New Testament tells us that not all the children of Abraham really are the children of Abraham, only the children of faith. Yeah. 
And so we have that example from the Old Testament that, you know, the people of Israel, whether they were saved or not, they were still, they still enjoyed the benefits of being part of that covenant community. Yeah. And so we can see that even in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, there can be people that make false professions of faith that will enjoy the benefits, if you will, of being united with the covenant community, even though they are not truly spiritually united with the covenant community. Right. And so therefore we must be on the lookout. We must first examine our own hearts. And we must examine those who uh, teach us. Right? All right. Everybody satisfied with that? Um, back to the, the original question, and, and then we dealing with Second Peter two one. It makes me think that you, when we have an interaction with someone that believes in more on aspect of the universal atonement, mm-hmm. we think of First uh, Timothy two four. You know, people misinterpreting that that all he wants all men to be saved. Okay? But then we, we gotta take a look at, at the definition of all men. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Romans eight twenty eight through thirty addresses that. It, it addresses uh, you know uh, we know all things work for good to those that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Right. For whom he foreknew. Right. So we're, we're talking about a difference between uh, talking to somebody, with one coming from a perspective of predestination and not another one believing that God just loves everybody and everybody. But the Bible talks about us, we, we addressed it last week, there's going to be a change in our lives. Mm-hmm. If we're truly with God, there's going to be a change. Yeah, we we believe in more than a a particular atonement. We believe in a particular atonement that is effectual. Um, So we believe that those whom Christ has saved, it will be effectual. For who he has has made atonement for, we believe that will be an effectual atonement, meaning their sins will actually be forgiven, and it will result in them having a changed life. The evidence is that they're saved. Yeah, and then the, the... Second half of what you're talking about, to me, it seems to address Hebrews five. Hebrews five talks about warning against falling away, mm-hmm. but it gives a description that you probably would, you would not fall away. You probably were never with Christ, and and that's here again. We're talking. I I think that a lot of people that talk to us. And, and take Second uh, Peter two one out of context, and that's the three C's. Um, they, they latch onto one aspect because someone has told them that, mm-hmm. but they have no. They've gone to no references like what I'm talking about. You know, Romans eight. You know, Second First Timothy, uh, Hebrews. Those things give a better description of what they're talking about in Second Peter two one. Right. To me. Yeah, definitely. You know, and I think that a lot of times someone grasps onto one scripture, holds on to that, and if we're talking to them, they go, oh no, but I've been taught this. But you've been taught that from someone's word and not necessarily God's word. Yeah. That's, and that's the battle that I see us, ha- a person having, 
in, in, in the world amongst people that, that say they're believers in getting it, well, this came from an authority, a pastor. You're not a pastor, therefore, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's, here again, there are false teachers out there. Yeah, and, and I, I would also just, if someone believes that passage um, teaches, in a universe, teaches a universal atonement, uh, they're wrong, but that doesn't necessarily make them a heretic. Okay. Correct. So. Correct. But it, it's it's limited. Their 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 knowledge is limited based on what they hear, and not necessarily what they read. Because a lot of people are biblically ignorant, and they're trusting that someone in your position is telling them the truth. Yeah. All right. Question number seven. That one, the last question was a pretty easy question. This question is not a very easy question. Oh, great. And I don't know if I'm going to... I probably won't be able to finish this one today. Um, we'll see. All right. Mark 16, 9 through 20, which is, of course, the last 11 or last 12 verses of the Gospel of Mark. And John 7, 50, 53 through 8, 11, which, is, of course, is the story of the woman caught in adultery. These are two of the biggest, what, what are called textual variants in the New Testament. And so the question is, if, if you were preaching through Mark or John, would you preach these texts? If so, why? And if not, why not? So I'm about to read a little bit fast, okay? So just bear with me on that. So we're, what we're dealing with here is textual variants. So Mark 16 and uh, John 7. <clears throat> if, you look, if you look at your in your Bibles, they probably have some sort of indication that uh, it probably has them in brackets or parentheses around them, and it probably says... Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include this text. Okay, if you look at your Bible, it probably says something very similar to that. Probably not if you have a King James Version. I don't think it would if you have a King James Version or a New King James Version. But if you have one of the more modern translations, ESV, uh, NASB, NIV, one of those, it will have that, that um, statement. Okay. This is what we call a textual variant, which simply means that in the thousands of manuscripts that we have, some of those manuscripts have various readings. How many manuscripts do we have? Does anybody know that? Over 4,000. Somewhere around 5,800. Okay, so it's, it's over 5,000, around 5,800. And that's, that's just our Greek manuscripts. Um, then you start getting into different early, early versions like uh, different, some of the different languages that, tran that uh, transcribe the scriptures early on, we have like 20-something thousand different manuscripts. But as far as Greek manuscripts go, we have about 5,800, give or take a few. Now, if you, look, if you Google up how many textual variants are in the Bible or in the New Testament, you'll see huge numbers pop up. There's 200,000, there's 400,000, some will say 800,000. I read one person said there's 8 million variants in the New Testament. There's a big problem with those numbers. Those numbers are not accurate. Now, how, how can I say they're not accurate? Because if you have 5,800 manuscripts, and one, there's one misspelling in one of them, and 5,500 of, 5, of them all use that same misspelling, well, how many textual variants is that? 5,500. According to their count. But according to their count, that's 5,500 textual variants. But it's only one. Okay? So in reality, we don't have that many textual variants, okay? And, and like 95 or more percent of those textual variants are simply things such as a misspelling of a word. Uh, some, like, here's an example of a textual variant. 
One, one might say Jesus Christ, and another version might say Christ Jesus. That's a textual variant. Okay? Well, that's extrapolated over thousands of manuscripts. That's a thousand, several thousand textual variants. It's, it's not. Okay? Make sense? Now, there are very, very few significant textual variants. And the two most significant textual variants are, of course, the longer ending of Mark and the story of the woman caught in adultery in the Gospel of John. Now, should textual variants alarm us? The answer is no. Um, <clears throat> Moses Stewart writes, No one doctrine of religion has changed. Not one precept is taken away. Not, a, not one important fact is altered by the whole of various readings collectively taken. Daniel Wallace writes, no viable variant affects any cardinal truth of the New Testament. And so the simple truth is that there are very few significant variants in all of the thousands of manuscripts that we have, which is in itself an extremely strong argument for the accuracy of the Bible, and as it has been transmitted throughout the millennium. Further, even the few significant textual variants we have do not affect the message or theology of the Bible. All right. Textual variants and textual criticism. As, as we stated, the two most significant textual variants are John uh, 7, 53 through 8, 11, sometimes referred to as the pericope adultera. Uh, pericope just means a portion or passage of Scripture. So this is referring to the passage concerning the woman caught in adultery. And secondly, there is a longer ending of Mark variant, which is found in Mark 16, 9 through 20. Interestingly enough, both of these major variants are 12 verses in length. Both of these passages are found in the Latin Vulgate, which dates back to the 4th century, and of course in the Textus Receptus, also known as the Received Text, which dates back to the early 16th century, 1516. And so this means that in the majority of church history, the church has regarded both of these texts as inspired scripture. However, as a result of archaeological discoveries, older manuscripts were later found, most notably, notably Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, both of which date back to the mid-4th century. And because these manuscripts are some of the older, oldest and most complete ancient manuscripts we have, and, and those manuscripts don't include these two passages. They, they omit these passages. This has had a major impact on modern textual criticism and modern Bible translations. Okay, everybody following so far? All right, so for the majority of church history, these have been considered scripture. However, in the 1400s and the 1800s, these two major manuscripts were discovered, and these two major manuscripts did not include these passages. And so our modern translations today have a critical view of these passages, and oftentimes they will um, put them in brackets and stating we don't think that these were in the earliest manuscripts, and therefore may not be Scripture. For example, the, re the Revised Standard Version completely omits it altogether and puts it in a footnote. Okay? All right, so let's work through this. History, the history of textual criticism. The earliest centuries, so in the earliest centuries, in the first um, five, six hundred years of the, of the first millennium, there were three main text families or types that arose. That was the Alexandrian, the Byzantine, and the Western. These were all different major... If you have the Alexandrian text type, so all the manuscripts that are Alexandrian are pretty similar. All the manuscripts that are Byzantine are pretty similar. All the manuscripts that are Western are pretty similar. That's what it's saying. So there's different text families. 
From these text types, the Bible was translated into various languages as Christianity spread. Okay, then you get to the Middle Ages and beyond. By the 7th century, the use of Greek had all but disappeared except in the Byzantine Empire. Hence, by the time the printing press was invented, the Byzantine text type was the dominant form of the Greek text. This text type, which came to be known as the Textus Receptus, was the underlying text for Erasmus's Greek New Testament in 1516, and this was the underlying text behind Luther's translation into German in 1522, and Tyndall's translation into English in 1525, and of course this would become the text type underlying the KJV in 1611. Now we move into the modern era. After the discovery of several ancient manuscripts that were older than the manuscripts used by Erasmus, Westcott and Hort published a, a new Greek Testament in 1881. Westcott and Hort largely rejected the Byzantine text type, focusing on the Western and Alexandrian text types, of, of which, of course, Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus are included. Since 1881, the majority of the English translations of the New Testament have used an underlying Greek text that, which is, that is much closer to the one published by Westcott and Hort as opposed to the one published by Erasmus. Okay? Everybody following so far? All right. This is why our modern translations have differences with the KJV, for example, or the uh, New King James Version. <clears throat> now, what is textual criticism? Well, textual criticism is the science or the study of examining the text, uh, the, the Greek manuscripts, to try to determine which is the closest to the original reading. Because, of course, we realize we do not, we do not have the original copies or, or autographs of the scriptures. The ones that were actually written by the apostles, we don't have those, right? They don't exist. What we have is copies of copies of copies of those, okay? And so that we, as we examine those copies, we look for evidence in those copies to determine, okay, which, which, is, which reading here is probably closest to the original reading. That's what textual criticism is. And basically the, it focuses on two types of um, evidence. First is external evidence, which seeks to, to determine which reading is supported by the most reliable witnesses. Now, when you hear the word witnesses, what that refers to is the Greek manuscripts are a major witness, what the, the text types, okay, the, the different versions, because the Bible was translated, translated into lots of languages in, in, in the early centuries, like Latin and Coptic, and so many, many, many languages the Bible was translated into. So those are witnesses as well. And also... Uh, the witnesses of patristic citations. That is, the witnesses of the early church fathers, as in, in their writings and their sermons, they would cite scripture. Okay? And so if a text is cited by a lot of church fathers, then we could probably deduce that that was part of the original text. Everybody following so far? Okay. So, the Alexandrian text is represented by the majority of papyri, which is, um, we have very, very few of those manuscripts left because the type of paper it was written on was very fragile. And so most of the papyri we have today, or all of the papyri as far as I know, is fragments. We don't have a full, complete set of the early papyri. Next, there's several early, um, I don't know if I'm saying this word right, unseals. And that is um, the text types that were written on parchment paper, which was much more durable than the papyri. And unseals means that these texts were written in all capital letters. Okay? The Coptic version, so that's, that's one of your languages that it was translated into. And the early church fathers such as Clement and Origen. Okay, so that's your external evidence for the Alexandrian text. Western text is represented by the Uncial D, 
the language of Old Latin and Old Syriac and the early church fathers such as Irenaeus, Tertullian, and Jerome. And the Byzantine text was represented by the vast majority of Greek manuscripts and most of the later church fathers. And so we said earlier there's like 5,800 Greek manuscripts. I think it's like 5,300 of them are Byzantine text. All right. Internal evidence. This involves both transcriptional probabilities having to do with the habits and practices of scribes. Okay, so scribes tend to have certain characteristics and probabilities that they'll follow. Okay, so for example, if they're copying a scripture and there's a, there's a verse that seems kind of odd or the reading's kind of difficult, they may make that reading a little bit more easier to read, right? And so over time, you can see where that could change the readings of the scripture over time. That, that's just one uh, example of transcriptional probabilities. And the other one is intrinsic probabilities. And that has to do with the, the biblical author's style and vocabulary. So when we read certain authors, they have certain styles of vocabulary. Paul writes like Paul. He doesn't write like Luke or Mark. Make sense? So each of the biblical authors have their, has their own style and vocabulary. And so here are five um, uh, helps to do um, internal evidence studies. We prefer the shorter reading. We prefer the more difficult reading. Prefer the reading that accords best with the author's style and vocabulary. Prefer the reading that best fits in context with the author's theology. And prefer the less harmonious reading in parallel passages. David Allen Bach writes, The ambiguity of these criteria make New Testament textual criticism and art as much as a sign. And I think that's very, very important. Although there's a lot of scientific methods used in textual criticism, it's still an art. Therefore, conclusions regarding any particular variant reading are often the result of, of a tenuous balance of criteria for or against. All right, so arguments for and against. Um, this is for concerning the longer ending of Mark. The against um, evidence is, the external evidence is the earliest extant manuscripts. Uh, the Alexandrian text we don't have, uh, we have don't include the longer ending. So most of these early, early manuscripts end at Mark 16, verse 8. Many of the translated versions into languages such as Old Latin, Syriac, and Sahedic and Armenian don't include the longer ending. And many early church fathers told, hold to the Gospel of Mark ending at 16.8, such as Eusebius and all those different church fathers. They're hard to say. Internal evidence. Vocabulary. The author uses a number of words in the longer ending that are not elsewhere used in the book. Uh, his style of Greek is a little bit different. And the reintroduction of Mary Magdalene, the restarting of the day and time, and that none of the post-resurrection meetings take place in Galilee as predicted by verse 7 of Mark 16. All of these are external or, or, or evidences against, external and internal evidences against the longer ending of Mark. Evidences for the longer ending of Mark. External evidence. The majority of Crete texts, nearly like 99% of them, include the longer reading. The, the Latin Vulgate includes the longer ending. And many early church fathers cite the longer ending, such as Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Hippolytus, Tatian, and the rest of those. Internal evidence. It makes sense that the post-resurrection appearance of Christ would be included in a gospel account as it is included in the other gospel accounts. Now, this is where you're going to get into which gospel is written first. Some people, some people hold to a Markan priority that Mark was written first. I don't hold to a Markan priority. I hold to a Matthewan priority, meaning I believe Matthew was written first. I believe Luke was written next. And I believe Mark was a synthesis of those two. So... Um, the teaching of the longer ending of Mark is consistent with the faith once we're all delivered to the saints. All right. 
So that was the arguments for and against that position. John 73 through 811, the arguments against. The story contains several words which do not occur elsewhere in any of John's writing. That would be an example of what type of evidence? Internal, Internal evidence. Secondly, the oldest manuscripts do not contain that. Some later manuscripts have this story in different locations in John, and some have this story recorded in, in Luke. That's an example of what type of evidence? There you go. Number three, some of the old Latin, Syriac, Sahidic, Armenian, and Gothic translations omit this story. And many church fathers, such as Origen, uh, Cyril, Chrysostom, Nonus, uh, make no mention of this story. Okay, that's arguments against this uh, story of the woman caught in adultery in John. Arguments for. The story fits into the context of John. Secondly, the theology and portrayal of Christ is consistent with the rest of John's gospel. This is called internal evidence. Third, Papias, a disciple of the Apostle John, knew the story and expounded upon it as evidenced by the church father Eusebius. That would be an example of external evidence. Augustine had stated definitely that certain individuals had removed from their codices or manuscripts the pericope adultery because they feared that women would appeal to the story to excuse their infidelity. So Augustine's theory was people removed this story because woman, uh, Christ forgave a woman and caught in adultery, and they, and they feared that women would use this as, as an excuse for adultery. Number five, the overwhelming majority of Greek texts include the story in John's Gospel, and the Latin Vulgate and other translation versions, early translation versions include the story. So arguments against and for. So far I haven't told you what my view is. I'm letting it up to you. Now, question. Should you read these two texts of Scripture? So the question was asked, if preaching through Mark or John, would I preach these texts? Well, I want to change the question a little bit and ask, if you were reading through Mark or John, would you read these texts of Holy Scripture? Because ultimately the question isn't just for preachers, but for all Christians who commune with God via His Word. And so my conclusion is that yes, I would read these two textual variants as Scripture and would therefore preach these texts of Scripture if I was preaching through Mark or John. However, I can understand if a person comes to a different conclusion and would not accuse them of taking away from the Word of God if they didn't preach the text. Okay? In conclusion, we need not fear textual variants. The Scriptures are able to make us wise into salvation and equip us for every good work the message that is able to accomplish this is not affected in any way by the textual variants we mentioned today. This doesn't mean that they're not important, but it does mean that the faith is not at stake with regards to our conclusions on this difficult issue. All righty. And it's 1016. So, Pastor John, would you close us in prayer? Yes, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this lesson.